Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Taught us on um, the passage in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a blind man by putting mud into his eyes. So that will help knowing that's what just happened when I read this passage. Um, we're, we're kind of picking up where we left off last week. This is from John 9, verses 13 through 41. They brought him, the one who had been blind, to the Pharisees. For the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform these signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, uh, what, have you, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man said that he was a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, so they inquired of his parents. Is this your son? And do you say that he was born blind? How then does he now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and that he was born blind. But we don't know how he can see now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they feared the Jews, who already had decided that anyone who confessed Jesus as the Christ would be excommunicated from the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they asked the man who had been born blind and said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you not want to become his disciples? They cursed him and said, you are this fellow's disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this one is from. The man answered, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but that he listens to one who is devout, one who does his will. From eternity, no one has heard of someone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do this. They replied, you have been completely born into sin, and you're teaching us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, Lord, so that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you're looking at him. The one speaking with you is he. The man said, I believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. Then Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those not seeing might see and those who see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and asked, and are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say that you can see, your sin remains. Good morning. Thank you, Holly, for reading that. I, I've read that text probably a hundred times this week, and 
That was the most inspiring reading I've had. And thank you, Jade, for praying. You lifted my spirits. The Lord lifted my spirits with your prayer, so thank you. As Holly said, Brian Holt brought this passage to us. This is, last week, this is the sixth of seven, quote, signs in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus does something spectacular, and John labels it a sign that's pointing to something. We've seen Jesus change water into wine. We've seen him heal a government official's son. We've seen him heal a man that had been disabled 38 years. Uh, we've seen him walking on the water. Those are the ones that are coming to mind. And now this. This healing of a man who was born blind. So the first, it's interesting, we don't get this often. I meant to research it and see if there's anything else really comparable to this in the Gospels. We usually, when there's a healing or a miracle in the Gospels, this just usually tells the story of the miracle. And there's not that much more said. It might just get labeled like a sign. This one, the space John gives to it after it's done is almost three times longer than the account of it itself. There's a ripple effect of this in the community. And maybe we would say a fallout (laughs) from this. And so John's going to describe it, this is interesting, as the day, not just when Jesus opened the man's eyes, who was born blind, but it's the day he made mud and opened the man's eyes. There's not much complicated about mud. Any four-year-old can tell you how to make mud. You take a little spit, you take a little dirt, you ball it up, you got mud with multiple applications. Anybody can tell you that. Maybe John wants to highlight the day Jesus made mud because he wants us to see how easy this was for Jesus. He healed this man by spitting in Jerusalem dirt, making some mud, putting on his eyes, instructing him to go wash in a public bathing house, and he was healed. Maybe that's what he had in mind. It's a great story. God uses something so simple to bring radical change physically to this man who had never seen. I I sat in the dark for a little while this week because I, I wanted to just, as best as I could in a few minutes, try to think about what it would, that would be like to have never seen. Probably most of us have friends, maybe a family member. That's their story. They've never seen the light of day. They've never seen an ocean. They've never seen a wheat field. They've never seen a human being with their eyes physically. They've had to rely on other senses. I've wondered what that was like for him to go from a lifetime of not seeing, born blind, to seeing. After this happens, normally... It's just a party. Everybody's celebrating. Great story. Jesus takes a mud 
heals a man. Everybody's happy. Not everybody's happy. The Pharisees aren't happy about this. Why? Why is this a problem? One word. Mud. Mud. I think John's telling us the day Jesus made the mud, because that's an interpretive key to understanding the story. The day Jesus made the mud was a Sabbath. And in the Pharisees' system of religion, of faith, of being with God, of being in the community, making mud on the Sabbath constituted work. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus had violated their system of righteousness, of what it meant to be in good standing. So the Pharisees are upset, but not all of them. Some of them are not so sure about this because they're looking a bit deeper and they're going, wait a minute. You're calling, you're framing Jesus as a sinner. How could a sinner open the eyes of a man who's been blind all his life? There's a crack in the system. And John tells us, and they were divided. And so the second half of the story now begins. The Pharisees bring in this man for questioning They said, tell us what happened. He tells them, he put mud in my eyes, he told me to go washed, I did that, kind of that simple, and I could see. Who do you think he is? I I don't know that the man has thought very much about that question yet or not, maybe he had. But I see his, so John, this is interesting because John reports his answer in a very ho-hum way. Some of your, some translations quote him saying he's a prophet. It's not really what the original language says. The the original language reads, and the man said he was a prophet. Like you would say that you would, you would think this would be like a special moment where the man's going to like confess the identity of Jesus. And all we get is this like rather generic vanilla. The man said he was a prophet. I think it was probably his way of saying, gee whiz, I haven't thought about that. Here's the best I've got. He healed me. He must be pretty special. So, prophet was maybe the easiest label he could grab. Well, that's not the answer they want. Prophet. So, what are they going to do now? So, what do they do? They call in the man's parents. They ask him, and they, they ask them the same questions. Is this your son? Yeah, that's our son. We're, we're confident of that. Was he born blind? Yep, he was. He's never seen a thing his whole life. Well, then, then what happened? How, how did this happen? Well, ask him. He, he, he's a grown man. Ask, ask him. I don't know what they were hoping he, they were going to say. Maybe they were going to say, they were hoping to say, you got, you got us. Junior has been faking blindness his whole life. To help support the family. They could beg. Maybe that's what they were hoping they could extract from them. And it makes a little sense that they might be hoping that something like that would happen. Because John 
tells us something. It's, it's another important interpretive key of the telling. What's he tell us? He tells us that mom and dad are filled with fear. They're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the Pharisees had leaked word on the street that anyone who confesses Jesus as Messiah will be excommunicated from the synagogue. That was no small thing. In the Jewish community, that was their solitary place of worship. That was their gathering social place, structure. It's where they came together. It was the only place you worshipped God in community. So anyone who confesses this divergent character over here, this sinner, will be excommunicated. You know, fear is a powerful, powerful force, isn't it? You don't need me to tell you that. Think about the place of fear in your own life. What has fear kept you from doing in your life? What has it kept you from becoming in your life? Most of the time, well, there's rare exceptions, fears that can be really healthy for us. But most of the time, fear prohibits us from being our best. From being who we want to be, from being whom God wants us to be. Fear is a powerful force. It, it is here for mom and dad. I mean, they, they tell the truth, but John wants to explain this is why they said this. So something was there that he saw mom and dad aren't really standing up for their child. They're sort of passing the responsibility and letting him fend for himself. But I think fear is not real. We're not just supposed to see fear in mom and dad. I think there's another group that fear is a powerful, powerful force in their lives. Think about it for a minute. Who issued the decree that anyone who confessed Jesus would be excommunicated? And why did they do that? What are they afraid of? Are they afraid of the influence of Jesus because of his teaching? See, Jesus was teaching that the person of God, not just principles about God, that's what the Pharisees taught, not just a system of how to be in good standing with God and in the community, they taught that. Jesus was teaching that God was available personally. The kingdom of God is at hand, he would say. He's in our midst. You can know him. You can know his truth and it can make you free. He's teaching something radically different that they can't control. And their power was coalesced around controlling and managing the system of morality and religion that they had constructed. Maybe they were afraid of him because he, whom he kept company with. Others who didn't fit in their system. 
others who didn't belong. Like this blind man, for example. When they called him in the synagogue, other than maybe being circumcised when he was eight days old, there's a good chance this is the only time he'd ever been in there. He was unclean. He was, his family, his mom and dad were already under suspicion. We saw it in the disciples' question last week, remember? Jesus and his disciples passed this blind man. Remember their question? Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents? Did this man sin when he was in the womb? He would have had to. Or was it his parents? See, there was deep prejudice. This is a way of keeping people on the outside. So were they threatened of Jesus because of that? We know they were threatened because of his morality. He's making mud on the Sabbath. And you don't do that. See, they had constructed over centuries, over centuries, a system. Paradigms that defined what it meant to be acceptable to God. To be acceptable in the community. And Jesus is is nurturing, he's living, he's kind of embodying a completely different way. A completely different culture, if you will, than theirs. And they don't know what to do with that. Jesus is breaking their paradigms, right and left. Sometimes it was what he said, sometimes it was just kind of how he was. They can't figure him out. He's a threat. And they couldn't have that. Their paradigms had no room for it. You know, paradigms are awfully hard things to change. What's a paradigm? It's the way we see the world. It's the way we see a situation. We frame it in a particular way. Paradigms, the way that we see things, the way that we think about something, those are awfully hard things to change. And, and, and in a sense, they should be hard to change, right? <clears throat> I mean, we've constructed how we see something. We've been, we've been immersed in something, the way we think about something. We've been sometimes enculturated by it. They should be hard things to say, we're, to change. We're human. But what if your paradigm's wrong? What if your system is misguided? What if it has cracks in it? Then what do you do? Well, I don't have all the answers to that, but I do know a few things that I've learned. One, it takes an awful lot of humility and courage to be open to changing your paradigm. To re-examine a tightly held belief. And that's what's going on here with the Pharisees. And as we're going to see, they're really given an opportunity here. I want to pause for a second and to say, I think one of the things that I, at least I've taken away and been reminded of this week, before we go further, is to follow Jesus, is to follow Jesus. God in the flesh. It's not about following a system, paradigms or principles. We have those, and those can be really good things or helpful. You kind of hard to live without them. But my relationship with God is my relationship with 
him in Jesus. And that's going to create a radically different way of living for me. If I'm actually relating to a person and not a principle. Does this make sense? This is a dynamic, interactive thing that I have been invited into. Relationship with God. Let's move on. The Pharisees' problems are mounting. They're realizing the he never was born blind to begin with argument is not working. It's not getting any traction because people knew this guy. They knew he'd been blind. And his parents have just confirmed it. So they return to their original tactic. Discredit Jesus. Attack his character. He's a sinner. So they call the man back in. And literally it's give glory to God. That was kind of a euphemism for tell the truth. Tell us the truth, dude. We know this man is a sinner. His, His reply is amazing. He's like, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. Guys, that's your department. You're the religious leaders here. I don't know. Let me tell you what I know. It's not much. But for me, it's big. I was blind, and now I'm not. That's what I know. That's it. Let's pause for a minute again, because I I think this is where the the passage is supposed to read us a little bit. So I want to ask you a question. Let's imagine some thugs pulled you into the synagogue, pulled you into Bridgepoint put you on the stage and swung a naked light bulb by your head, turned the lights out, and they said, tell me about Jesus. Who is he to you? And you're not theologically trained. I mean, you're, you're flooded. All you see is the naked light bulb. Who is Jesus to you? What, what one thing can you say about him? What's the one thing he's done for you? What's the thing he's delivered you from? What's the thing he's delivered you to? How has he healed you? Who is he to you? Don't quote a system or a paradigm or a principle. Who is he to you? I think the question is that the text is asking that question of us. The Pharisees aren't satisfied with his response. They're not satisfied at all. (laughs) So they pepper him again. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And I think at this point, we're supposed to see they didn't realize who they were dealing with here. They probably thought this dude's an easy target. Formerly blind man. He said, listen to his reply, I already told you. And you didn't listen. Why do you want, do you want to hear it again? Oh, maybe you want to become his disciples. Now, admittedly, it would have taken a tremendous amount of humility and courage for them to receive his question any other way than a threat. To be defensive. I mean, I don't know if he was being cynical or not. It sure seems like it. 
whether he was or not, he, here's the irony in the story. What they probably received as a threat, John wants to see was an invitation from God to life. Do you want to be his disciple? They can get offended by that. They can feel disrespected. This is the point of the story where I kind of want to step in it. And I kind of want to say, hey, guys, right now would be a good idea to slow down a little bit. Like, I've been here before. Like, it'd be really helpful if you could stop right now and think about this question a little bit. But they're not going to slow down. They're not going to slow down. So what do they do? Well, their paradigm has been threatened. And their decision based on fear and pride that they've deeply committed to how we're going to frame who Jesus is. Being curious and humble is out the door for them. It's not an option available to them because of that fear and that commitment that they've made. So what do they do? They cursed him. Your Bible may read they hurled insults at him. Literally, it's they cursed him. Man, fear and commitment to unexamined paradigms can bring out the very worst in us. And that's what we're looking at right here. To curse someone is to evoke the judgment of God on them. It's not just saying, we don't like you, or we think you're wrong. It's becoming obvious who the fearful ones are in the story now. This man who's maybe starting to align his life with Jesus has threatened them, and they are on the assault, and condemnation is flowing from their heart through their mouth. And the man has something to say. This is a high point in the story. This man who's not trained theologically is now going to use their theology brilliantly. Listen, he says, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does, see here's their theology. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. See that was their theology. God doesn't hear sinners. Hmm. But he listens to the one who's devout and does his will. Boy, talk about a double-edged sword. Does God listen to sinners or not? From eternity, no one has heard of someone opening the eyes of a man born blind. No one's ever heard of this before. If this man wasn't from God, how could he have done this? Man, all of a sudden, this man is speaking to these men who are supposed to know a lot about God out of a place of, get this, personal knowledge of what God has done for him. All of a sudden, he's the one with the knowledge. 
because he's experienced God. He doesn't fully know it yet. But he's, he's way out over his skis here in what he's saying. This is brilliant. And their response is predictable. They, they can't be sensible anymore. They tried that approach. All they have left is their pride. You were born into sin, they say to him. You've been sinful all your life. And then John says, well, they say, and you're teaching us? And then John tells us, and they threw him out. You can kind of hear the thud right here. I wanted to play a sound effect right now, but I thought that would be too cheesy. You know, like they throw a cowboy out of the saloon, you know, or out the window and you hear this crash. But they threw him out. Like a piano falling from the 10th floor, hitting the ground. We might think this is the end of the story. It's not. One has been sort of mysteriously absent in this second half of the story. He now enters, enter Jesus. Listen, verse 35, Jesus heard the man, that the man had thrown him out, that had been thrown out. So he what? Finds him. He finds him. He goes on a search and he says, You believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers, Who is he, Lord? So that I might believe. And you heard Holly read it. You're looking at him. The one who's speaking to you right now is he. And man, this is the man's moment right here. The scales had fallen off his eyes, now they're falling off his heart and his soul. Lord, I believe. And he worships. Right there. He worships. Two amazing phrases. Jesus found him. He worshiped Jesus. Man. This man had been dragged into the synagogue. Been told He was sinful by birth his whole life, by the way. When I say you can close your eyes and imagine what it means to be blind, now add to that a community who says you're sinful from birth to that. Add to the shame and the guilt to that. Maybe you've got a story like that, that there's voices in your life that says shameful, shame on you. That was this man's life. He'd been drugged into the synagogue. After being healed, and instead of being celebrated, he's shamed again. He's not believed. He's called a liar. He's cursed. He's condemned. And he's tossed out of the synagogue. But don't miss this irony. The man is tossed out of the accepted public place of worship. They said, you don't belong in here. You don't get to worship God. It's 
been validated that we haven't let you in here already. What's he doing? He's in the dirt of the Jerusalem street where Jesus made that mud. What's he doing? Worshiping. I mean, if that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what can. You weren't supposed to worship in the street. He's worshiping God right there. Now, now we kind of wish the story would end here. <laughs> it doesn't. We wish it just would end right there with a the man worshiping, and we'd say, great story. A fitting end to, <laughs> to an exhausting account. It doesn't. Jesus has something to say now. Remember, he's here now. And he wants to say something. Listen to it. For judgment, I came into this world so that those not seen might see. Well, he just backed that one up. And those who claim to see might be shown for what they are. It's a, there's a bit of an enigma here. It, it, you can't really get this one, I don't think, quickly. I mean, it's like, okay, is that, is that a kind thing he just said? Is that a harsh thing he just said? I mean, what is this? For judgment I came into the world, so that those not seen will, and those seen won't. That was what was so brilliant about Jesus. One of the things he often did was say things like this, that you just couldn't grab in a New York minute. That you had to go think about it. Again, you'd like to enter the story and say, uh, excuse me, Mr. Pharisees, this is, would be a good time to convene a special meeting in the corner of the synagogue somewhere and talk about and think about what you just heard Jesus say. That's what John wants us to do. But they don't. Instead, they push back. <laughs> their pride and their paradigm won't let them do anything else. Do you know the question? And dot, dot, dot. Are we blind? You so wish that question was coming from a place of humility. From like longing and and hunger, not fear, not feeling threatened. And are we blind? They don't know it, but they're asking the right question. I think this is the question for, for us. It, it's so easy to kind of go on the attack with this story against the Pharisees, right? You know, they're, they're, not, they're not hard to be judgmental toward, you know. They're pretty easy pickings for us 2,000 years later. But, but I think, like, when you stop with the question, if you gather in the corner of the synagogue like you wish these guys would have and, and ask the question, Lord, is there blindness in my life? Where is it? They knew the scriptures. They could have gone to... Psalm 139, I think it is, and said, search me, O God, search us. 
and know our hearts. Test us. Examine us. See if there's anything offensive in us and lead us in your way everlasting. You wonder if they could have done that. If maybe some of those Pharisees that weren't, weren't sure about this approach could have raised their voice and said, let's think about this question we have just asked. Let's turn it on ourselves for a moment. Let's bring it before the Lord for a moment. But they do not intend to entertain that possibility. And their unwillingness to do so is so, so costly. So John wants us to learn the lesson of the Pharisees here. He wants them to be our teachers. You know, this could have been a breakthrough right here. This could have been a major breakthrough for them. Paradigms are hard to change. Pride can be even harder. So are we blind too? Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin here. If this was just a matter of you can't see, that would have been okay. God knows how to help someone who can't see. But because you think you see clearly, your sin remains. Translated, oh, you're much worse than blind. You wish you were blind. That'd be better for you if you were like this man was. But you can't blame this on your inability. It must be blamed on your refusal. Your resistance, worse than blind. So, this is a reversal of the kingdom. Those who can't see, God will help. Those who won't see, it's a different matter. These leaders fear, anger, accusations, condemnations, as we're going to see in John. You may know the story is only going to grow, and it's going to consume them to the point of putting Jesus to death. They find themselves on the wrong side of history. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. <laughs> I want to be with that blind man. I want to stay in his company. I want to stay confessing. I want to come seeing him. I want to come. I want to stay with worshiping Jesus. This is a story of both great beauty and great ugliness. We see both. And I think that's intentional. Because the lessons in this story have profound implications of how we see ourselves, how we hold our paradigms, how we deal with our own pride that we all have, how we see others, and how we're with them, how we interact with them, who maybe don't hold our paradigms, and most importantly, how are we to be with Jesus? The blind man shows us, receiving his healing, confessing, 
his faith and worshiping. So the blind man winds up being our teacher here. Here's, here's the lesson. I tried to like wrap it up in a statement because there's so much here. Being with ourselves, others, and ultimately with God in curiosity and in humility. Those things are often typed as weakness. And they can be, for sure. But they don't have to be. Because true humility and true curiosity and openness before the Lord is not weakness, it's strength. And it's God's vision for our lives. They can be evidence of being grounded in a kingdom and in the knowledge that I am secure in Jesus as this man was. The knowledge that he is in charge and I am not. I never am. So we look to Jesus. This man winds up with Jesus. The great reversal. The man that born, was born in sin, saw it was seen that way, didn't belong, was cursed, cast out. Where is he? He's with Jesus, worshiping, filled with gratitude and joy. I'm sure he didn't have, he still had plenty of problems to deal with in his life. He had a lot to work out now, but he's with Jesus. He's okay. These leaders who had coalesced their power, who did all they could to keep the respect of the people, they're not with Jesus. They wouldn't be with Jesus. The trajectory of their lives we know already. We look to Jesus, God in person. He wants to be with us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this text, that's, that's, there's so much going on and there's so many characters and we, we see things that we read and can understand. We also realize it wants to read us. Uh, Lord, Give us humility and courage to allow not just this text to read us, but to, for you to read us. And Lord, so often I find myself sometimes consciously, often not, kind of inwardly constructing my defense. Driven by maybe fear, uh, probably pride, reputation. Who ha how I want others to see me, and Lord, Jesus invites us to be seen by the living God right as we are, and that's a place of strength, even though, yes, it's also a place of weakness and vulnerability. It's, it's really both. Lord, I imagine this blind man's paradigm changed that day, that whole God, we know God doesn't listen to sinners. Lord, in Jesus, we have learned a different story. May, maybe in that dark room with a light bulb swinging by my face, one thing I would hope I would say is, 
I know this, Jesus found me. He saw me. He listened to my cry. Even when I wasn't at my best, he was there for me. That I know. Lord, that may those kinds of confessions become our anthem. May this be our gift to the communities that we live in, neighborhoods and workplaces and family. I don't know about all those issues that are hot topics. They're as confusing to me as they ought to be for them, but I do know this. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to articulate what we know and share, and we would anchor our identity, our security in those things. Help us, Lord. We are needy people. We are sinners, and we're grateful that you've heard us. Lord, speak to us. There are those among us don't have to be told they're sinners. They know it. They feel the guilt and shame of it. See them right now, Lord. Let them know you see them. Let them know you hear their cry. Be there. We know you will. Thank you for seeing and hearing us. Amen.